Blog Talk Radio. Three-year warranty. 
Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Pictures of chickens on aprons are common across America, but picture a chicken wearing an apron and you'll probably get a good chuckle. Laugh if you must, but nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster and may even provide protection from an unexpected hawk attack. Hen savers come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and standard sized hens and roosters. Colors include camo, denim, navy, brown, khaki or black, and soon pink. Crazy K Farm is expanding its already colorful hen saver collection to include the color pink. A portion of their sales will be donated to organizations that fund breast cancer research and awareness. Order your Hensaver aprons today at Hensaver.com. That's Hensaver.com. Established in 1957, GQF has become the name to trust when it comes to quality products and superior customer service. GQF offers a wide range of poultry products, including incubators, brooders, feeders, waters, and much, much more. Give them a call at 912 912- Two three six zero six five one, or visit them online at gqfradio.com. That's gqfradio.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. All righty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And uh, glad you could join us. We have a great show. We have poultry scientist and professor Dr. Bridget McRae joining us today. Poultry Research Translated is our topic. Always a fun one when we have her on, and we have this topic come up in an array of different topics we do throughout the year with uh, Dr. McRae. So it should be a great show. Get your pen and paper out. There may be some things that just might interest you and may improve the way you and me take care of our backyard flock. So how cool is that? So uh, enjoying our stay right down here in uh, beautiful and tropical Florida. Uh, today was Christmas tree day. We headed up to uh, Sebring and uh, stopped at a uh, little Christmas tree stand, if you will, and the kids uh, had a good time. Caleb was only picking their Christmas tree out. We got home just in time to finish decorating it, snap a few snapshots and pictures and and uh, go live here for the radio show, and uh, they'll be taking a nap here a little bit shortly. But they're really enjoying it. Caleb now is is old enough, three and a half, that he can zoom around on his uh, his tricycle. Man, let me tell you, he can fly on that thing. 
and uh, looking at maybe getting him a new one for Christmas. He's got the old radio flyer, I guess, you know, and uh, the red one, the classic one that everybody has. And we got it for him, I guess, about, I guess it was a year ago. I guess we were down here. And, um, but now, boy, he's gotten old enough that we can just fly on it all through. Uh, this little uh, uh, RV resort we're staying at, enjoying the warm weather. But um, there, John Deere has one, or it's got the John Deere decals on it anyway, and it's got the pneumatic tires on it. So it's got a really big airfield tire, like a bicycle tire on the front and on the back, uh, versus just the hard plastic, you know, solid rubber tires, I guess, on, on the uh, old radio flyer um, uh, tricycles. And I think it'll actually be easier for them and uh, to, to pedal that with the rubber tires instead of the hard, uh, solid tires on it. And uh, I think he said, so maybe Santa will uh, find that under the tree uh, for uh, for Caleb this year. We'll have to see if I can find one. I know there's one back at home at the local hardware store I've had my eye on for a while, but maybe we'll find one while we're down here. So, and of course... Uh, we say, so what do you want? What do you want Santa to bring you for Christmas? And of course, it's the other day we were in uh, a family dollar, and he saw a car hauler. He loves his trucks, tractors, and trains. And he's like, I want that car hauler. I want that car hauler I saw at the store. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, he talks about um, trains that go by themselves. We're getting into that, you know, everything battery operated. Up to this point, it's we try to swing, sway, sway away from that. But you know, so so maybe a little train set that goes by itself and. A remote control tractor um, or truck or something like that. So uh, it will find its way under the under the tree for Caleb. Lily, she's I don't know. She's got a shorter attention span. She likes to play with the toy for about five minutes, and hey, I'm done with it. Played with it, done with it. Mark her off the list. Next. <laughs> I'm not sure about her. She's going to be a lot more difficult to buy at at 20 months old. So she's not really into dolls, and she knows doll, and she has one or two, but. She'll hold on to it, you know, depending on what mood she's in. But then when she's done, she's done. Just throw it in the ground next. <laughs> so, uh, but I hope you are having a great uh, month getting into the holiday season here. Hope you have a great one with a good family and friends. So, on our agenda. And uh, so, hey, looks like uh, Dr. McRae has called in. She is in the um, caller queue. So, let's go over here to the switchboard. Let's first give her a big round of of applause. A big chicken whisperer. Welcome. Oh, and we'll bring her live. Hello, Doc. Thanks for joining us today. Hi. How are you? Doing good. Thank you so much. Glad you could make it today. Hope you're doing well. I'm fine. I'm healthy again. I, I ditched my cold after, that I came down with after nationals, but uh, I'm all well now. That's good, yep. Uh, Caleb and Lily had that thing, and it was not pretty. Well, Lily only had it for two days, that was it, and, and it only really affected her for two nights, that was it. Caleb, boy, he got full blunt of it, and and um, for uh, seven days, man, it was tough, and he had about three or four nights there where he just could not sleep. It all got congested in his throat and chest. It was not pretty. God bless his heart, but uh, he got through it seven days. It's kind of like, you know, well, you can take medicine, and uh, it'll be done in seven days, or you can not take medicine, and it'll be done in seven days. So, Ooh, hey, choose yeah. your poison. <laughs> <laughs> got to run its course. Oh, man. Well, I hope you don't mind, Andy, but I just posted something on your website because I can't log in to Blog Talk today. I'm having okay. a lot of problems with blog talk today. Um, so I posted on your Facebook page a link to um, my Facebook page, <laughs> and it contains information on several upcoming events 
and I started doing the avian bowl questions every day. So if you want to spice things up, you can challenge yourself with a Facebook question from the Center for Small Flock Research and Innovation. And today the question is, from raising your home chicken flock, what bulbs wattage provides adequate light for 200 square feet of floor space for your chickens or 18 square meters for your chickens? Now, to fill in the blank, so people have, if they have copies of the avian bull manual, they can look it right up under lighting for raising your home chicken flock. Now, is this just for general lighting to go in, or is this like lighting through the winter to maintain egg production? Um, it can be for either. You could be starting chicks. You could be um, having them for eggs. You could just have it as your regular lighting system. Okay. But mostly for eggs. <clears throat> So a couple of things that are coming up. I'm hoping you won't mind if I share them with folks, Andy. Please do. It's all about education, so please share anything that people can attend and learn more about their flock from the experts. <laughs> the egg experts? <laughs> egg experts. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a couple of things coming up in the new year that I wanted to tell people about. Um, here on Delmarva, we have something in January called Delaware Ag Week. And it's open to anybody. You can come from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, anywhere you want. You can come on down to Delaware Ag Week. And they have a series of seminars on various topics from forestry to uh, cattle to crops, vegetables, fruits. And there's even a seminar on small flocks. And this small flock seminar is the 14th January. And it's from 6 p.m. until 9 p.m at the Delaware State Fairgrounds, and it's a free event. So we've got several speakers. Um, some of, well, all of them are local. And we're going to be talking about pastured poultry quite a bit. So if there are people out there who are interested in pastured poultry, whether they want to tackle it in 2015 or at least learn more, come join us. And... um we are going to do Cooptastic in 2015. That will be March 7th. March 7th. And um, that will be at the Delaware State Fairgrounds, again, in the Dover Building. It's an event that is once every other year. And we already have several vendors already lined up. Peter Brown is one of them. Um, the Chicken Fountain is one of them. And um, as I slowly add vendors, I will gladly share their names with you. Um, I think we might be able to get, um, like, say, Chick Flick or maybe even Murray's Hen Hoops. So come take a look at Cooptastic. It is a big, huge, humongous event. It brings in a lot of topics that are uh, of importance to people. The topics that we bring to you are based off of what people told us two years ago. So come join us. It'll be a fun time. I've had the uh, privilege to uh, and the honor to attend one time, and then I think the next time we were having a baby. And you then, were. So, so uh, yep, absolutely. And I was uh, when I got your text this morning. We were on the road, but I was trying to scan over to my calendar, and um, I think I'm going to be in Ohio during that time. 
doing wow. it. Well. It's already that's, that's already been booked. So I'll check again and make sure. But I think I've been booked the third, fourth, and the fifth, uh, and um, not Cleveland. Um, uh, where in Ohio? Anyway, Columbus, Ohio, I think. Um, I've got an event in those three days, I believe, so I don't know if I'm going to make it this year because I've already been booked for the Chick Days are always nuts. Um, and uh, I will continue yeah. to get things for Chick Days anytime between February 15th and you know, it is, uh, May and even into June. It's, uh, it's crazy. And, and, uh, and even this time, it's, they've started booking early. And then the will still have some folks that say, oh, by the way, we're having a event in two weeks. Can you make it? <laughs> two weeks? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me what yeah. it's going to be next year, and, and we might be able to get on the calendar. So, oh, my goodness. I don't know weeks. why they always seem to contact me in the springs when I teach for Chick Day. So if anybody's yeah. out there listening, I'm not teaching this spring. So if you want me for Chick Days, you can yeah. get me this spring, not next spring. But spring of 2015, awesome. I always seem to be contacted, and they're like, "Oh, we hear you're available." And now I'm teaching this semester, and then they don't, they don't come back. <laughs> so next year, yeah. but then they come back the year after that. Oh, we hear you're available. No, <laughs> that was last year. <laughs> that was last year. <laughs> I teach spring of even numbered years. Call me out on the odd number years. <laughs> All right. So those are just a couple of things that are coming up. Um, there's also an Avian Bowl event. The New Jersey Avian Bowl event is coming up on the 28th of February. That's from 10 a.m. until 3.30 p.m. That's a actually a big, small animal field day. And as I get more details on that, I will post it on the Facebook page and also the Center for Small Flock Research and Innovation page. Cool. <clears throat> so I thought I would go ahead and get started, but I, I honestly, I've been awfully busy, Andy. Um, you know, I teach this semester, and you're going to have uh-huh. to remind me of something, <laughs> which was why I was trying to text you earlier. Um, did I talk to your listeners about the Broiler versus Delaware project already? I think you've talked to me about it, but I don't think you've had anything or mentioned it publicly, but yeah, I think you had mentioned it to me maybe off air, offline. Um, okay. we, we, we talked on the phone, but I don't think you've mentioned it um, on, on the, on the uh, show. Okay. Well, it's finally been published, and if I haven't already talked to your listeners about it, let me just do so now. Um, So a couple years ago, as associated with my class, we did uh, a study comparing Delaware chickens. Now, I don't mean the blue hen. I'm talking about the breed called Delaware, which is a mostly white bird with barred hackle and tail feathers. Um, The Delaware breed was, guess where it was developed, Andy? Hmm. Delaware. <laughs> so we compared um, pe- a couple of pens of Delawares with a couple of pens of broilers. And it was associated with my advanced poultry science class. So it was a, a teaching opportunity as well. And my students uh, for the advanced poultry science class, they go on a series of field trips for their labs at the beginning of class. Um, And then at the end of class, when it warms up a little bit, because remember, we start classes in January and finals are in May. 
at towards the end of class, it's a little warmer outside, and we start raising chickens. And so we had two pens of Delawares and two pens of of uh, broilers. And I got now, the broilers from... Like the, these are just like a Cornish cross, typical yeah. broilers. I got them from a local hatchery. And because uh, we do have a few broilers here on Delmarva, just just a couple. And what we did is I had the students learn how to handle the birds, how to weigh the birds, how to calculate growth, how to calculate um, feed conversion. So every week we went out there, they had to weigh the birds. They also had to weigh the feed and calculate how much feed they'd eaten that week and divide it per bird and determine what the average daily gain was for the bird. So it was a good teaching opportunity. It's good for um, students to learn and and understand how to record growth parameters. At the end of the grow-out for the broilers, which was six weeks, they processed the chickens. And the students always find that to be very interesting. They never know what to think of it at the beginning, but usually at the end they're, they they know what they need to do. They understand what giblets are, um, how to process gonna, a bird. I was going to ask when they uh, are processing the chicken, do they ask you, now where are the nuggets? <laughs> usually there are quite a few nugget jokes being thrown around, <laughs> but no where nuggets being thrown around. Chicken fingers and chicken nuggets. Where are the fingers and where are the nuggets? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so we just have the students process the broilers. We did not have them process the Delawares. So what happened is since, you know, eventually the students, they they go through finals and then they're done with the class, what they did is they experienced processing the, the broilers, and then we continued raising the Delawares until they were the same live weight as the broilers when the broilers were processed. <clears throat> so we wanted to know how long that would take and how much feed it would take to get them there. So, you know, we weighed the birds weekly. At the end, we ca- calculated um, uh, feed conversion ratio. We calculated dressing percentage because the weight of the birds alive is more than the weight of the carcass you get after you process the bird because you've got certain parts you don't keep, you've got um, feathers you don't keep, so on and so forth. And that's called the dressing percentage. So first and foremost, the average body weight of the chicks at the beginning of the study, um, the Delawares weighed significantly less than the broilers. And I did forget to mention, we got the Delawares from Marie McMurray Hatchery. And the Delawares weighed only about 35 grams, uh, whereas the broilers right out of the shell weighed a good 10 grams more. Already, as soon as they were hatched out, the Delawares were at a disadvantage. So sometimes I get... And the broilers were ready to put on a stick and eat? (laughs) No, (laughs) not quite. (laughs) But there's a lot of factors that go into play as to why you get the chicks you do from companies like, say, Murray McMurray. It could be the age of the flock that's laying the the eggs, um, the temperature of the incubator, 
Um, there are differences between different incubators within a company. Um, you know, you can get uh, different size eggs from your breeder flock. There's a lot of parameters. So what we just did was we asked for straight-run birds, just like anybody could order. Um, and straight-run means 50-50 mix of males and females. Same as with the broiler chickens, it was whatever hatched out, 50-50 mix of, you know, straight-run broilers. Um, and so that was, that's you know, could be contributing why there was such a, a big chick difference. Of course, those chicks from Murray McMurray also had to travel. The chickens here um, that we got here on Delmarva didn't have to travel as far. They're local. And... So each week, you know, we weighed the birds on a Tuesday, and all the way through from week one to week six when the broilers were processed, the broilers were significantly heavier than the Delawares. Not a surprise, honestly. Um, but if you were looking for a bird that could get to a market weight in a timely manner, um, when you compare the two, at six weeks, the Delawares were over half a kilogram, whereas the broilers were at over two kilograms. Well, they were about four and a half pounds. Um, two kil just over two kilograms was about four and a half pounds. And so we kept raising those Delawares until... They were the same live weight as the broilers when the broilers were processed, processed at six weeks old. Now, Andy, how long do you think it took us? I was just about to think and process that in my brain. I was going to say probably around uh, 20 or 22 weeks. Mm. Not quite that long. Okay. 16. It took 15 weeks. Okay. I had three numbers in my head. I had 20 to 22 <laughs> weeks and then the 16 weeks, but I thought, nah, that might be a little early. <laughs> it took them it took them 15 weeks. Now, if you if you think about it, the the Delawares was one of the later breeds to to be developed here in the United States in the American class for the American Poultry Association. And of course, yes, it was developed here in Delaware, but it was actually one of the first attempts that was made at creating a broiler. And I when I say broiler I mean a meat chicken. <clears throat> and so it's a it's a cross. Um just a, a little bit of history for you. Um it, it was first called um a barred cross uh and it was <clears throat> excuse me, it was developed here. Um it was a barred Plymouth Rock male crossed with a New Hampshire hen. And George Ellis in Ocean View, Delaware, was the one who developed this cross. And it's kind of cool that he developed this breed in Ocean View, where the broiler industry was started in Ocean View. Kind of, kind of unique that they both were developed in the same place. I don't know what it is about Ocean View. Something special there. Something special for chickens in the in the ground there, maybe. Um. We did notice that the broilers had a higher mortality rate than the Delawares. Um, 
So the the Delawares were only at about three percent, but we had eleven percent uh, broiler mortality, and and that could actually be affected by how we were raising the birds. We did not raise these birds in a broiler house. We raised them in pens, just like any small backyarder would do. Um, we did actually use Purina feeds for this um, study. Just um, as a matter of full disclosure, they donated all the feed for this particular study. And when you looked at uh, feed convert, or actually, what, what chart am I looking at? Oh, feed intake. Here we go. Um, corresponding with the high growth rate of the broilers, they ate more. They ate more food on a weekly basis than the Delawares did. And so when you look at the cumulative amount of feed that that uh, a couple pens of broilers ate, you've got about 100 kilograms of feed total went into those broiler chickens to get them up to about four and a half pounds in six weeks. As a comparison, it took over 200 kilograms of feed to get those two pens of Delawares up to four and a half pounds in 15 weeks. So the feed conversion ratio is not all that good for the heritage breed birds versus the bird that has uh-huh. been bred over the last 60 years to be more efficient. <laughs> so if people are going to price their product correctly, Andy, if they're going to calculate all their inputs, when estimating, you know, the costs associated with raising a slower-growing bird, like a heritage breed bird, they need to think about their labor, their inputs such as feed and electricity and housing. And they have to understand this bird is not going to efficient, be as efficient in the use of feed. So mm-hmm. if someone's going to raise meat birds, you might want to start with a broiler chicken, Um You'll be done sooner. You'll get a little practice under your belt before you perhaps take on a heritage breed bird. So, um, you know, the the broilers grew two and a half times faster. Um, you're looking at probably 15 weeks to get a Delaware up there. You are going to get a, a statistically significant smaller carcass off of a Delaware chicken. They're not going to have a full rounded breast like you see with the broiler chickens in the grocery store. They're going to have a skinnier breast because they do put a little more effort into growing bones and um, organs. So, you know, but the taste will be different. We did not actually do a sensory evaluation for our study, but I did actually take one of the birds home, and, yeah, they're a little bit gamier. So the taste is different as many of your listeners know very well. Um, So if you're looking for a more efficient bird, uh, start with a broiler if you've never done meat birds before, and then you can feel free to switch over to a Delaware knowing that your costs are going to be higher. Um, We did uh, talk a little bit about, in the the particular study, about the the specific costs. the cost to feed the broilers was $87.58 based upon the price of the feed during the time we did the trial. But the Delawares, to feed them, was $170.13. So it's almost two times more 
in cost to feed the Delaware, so you got to make sure you price your product correctly. And you get a smaller bird, and you have to wait longer. And so you'll be getting checks and money if you're selling your birds faster if you do the uh, broilers. Yeah, I just want people to know what they're getting themselves into so they don't get, they don't feel stuck. They're like, oh, well, this this chicken, I didn't get anything near what I thought I would. Uh, I don't want people to be frustrated and feel like they they um, lost money. I want them to be um, understanding what they're getting themselves into and price their product accordingly, which means you got to market your product accordingly, too. You have to market them a little more, probably focusing on taste. Of course, a lot of people, when they look at the carcass, they're going to see this skinny little carcass and go, that doesn't look like what's going on in the grocery store. What are you trying to sell me? <laughs> so you're going to have to... You're gonna to have to do a lot of marketing and a lot of explaining, and, and there you go. And if you sell per sell per pound or per bird, like oh, this bird's this much. This if you sell per pound, and they look at the carcass and they're like, hmm, seven ninety nine a pound versus three ninety nine a pound. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's what I tell. Right. So many people on these blogs and forums when they're typing, and I saw it I don't know, about a month ago. It seemed like uh, every other day someone was posting a picture of a uh, poultry truck going down the street loaded with broilers. And, um, you know, they were the, the, the pet chicken, you know, enthusiasts, and they would snap that picture and they'd post it on their Facebook page or on a chicken forum or blog and say, oh, this is, you know, so sad and uh, brought a tear to my eye and knowing how much I care about my chickens and love my chickens and this, that, and the other. And, uh, and I kind of took all emotion out of it. I posted, I said, every single person, on this forum, who has ever eaten at a restaurant, who has ever bought chicken in the store, is guilty of that truck. Bottom line, um, because <laughs> there's no way. So, so you know, if you've never eaten chicken at a restaurant. If you have, bam, there's your, there's your chicken right there. Um, you know, so so it's you know, do as I say, not as I do type of thing for for a lot of folks. Um, it's you know, uh, are you willing to pay? <clears throat> Twelve ninety nine a pound for boneless, skinless breasts in the store, uh, or do you want it for three ninety nine a pound at, at Walmart? Do you want ninety nine cent uh, chicken sandwiches at uh, at the fast food joint? Well, guess what? A lot of people do, and that's why you see that truck right there. Bottom line, I don't think there's any other way to to, to um, explain that to anybody other than that. I mean, that that to me, that's the bottom line right there. <laughs> ninety nine cent chicken nuggets, ninety nine cent chicken value meal at the, at the fast food joint. That's why you're seeing that truck. Three ninety nine boneless, skinless breasts at the, at the store. That's why you see that truck. Now, raise your hand if you're not guilty. And then, you know, the room is silent. <laughs> so, and, you know, uh, you've yeah. got to think about, do people deserve to eat balanced There's a lot of people who don't have access to a balanced diet or, or an affordable protein source. And that's one of the reasons <clears throat> why chicken... <clears throat> Sorry, still getting over my cold. Yep. <clears throat> Our why chicken is still um, raised because it's an affordable source of protein that adds to people's balanced diet selections. So, it, it, not everybody can afford to pay seven ninety nine a pound, and you do hope that plenty of people in this world will be able to. Uh, get 
the foods they need to live a, a healthy and balanced diet and life. Yep. Okay. Oh, dear. And I forgot to turn my phone off. Oops. Sorry. Uh, no worries. <laughs> no worries at all. Um, one of the next studies I wanted to share with you <clears throat> has to do with uh, chicken diet. And um, I found it very interesting, a very good read. The researchers were out of Ethiopia, and they took a look at alternative sources for protein and energy in the chicken diet. They looked at cassava root chips and, I may not say this right, but I'm going to try, Moringa oleifera leaf meal. Um, In certain parts of the world, Corn and soy isn't plentiful like it is here in the United States. And so for people in that part of the world to have access to affordable um, chicken, which for most cultures there's no taboo against eating chicken, so it's a great source of protein, um, and eggs, they they need to find alternatives for corn and soybean. And so the cassava root trip, chips and the Moringa oleifera leaf meal um, were added into egg layer rations. So they looked at the performance of the laying hens on the number of eggs that they laid, the size of the eggs they laid. Um, They actually did have these laying hens in with roosters, so they also looked at fertility and hatchability. Okay, so they had a plain diet. A plain old commercial diet, um, so they didn't have any cassava root or um, moringa uh, leaf meal in it. And then they started to, in different treatments, add in either cassava root chips or the moringa leaf meal. And in the final uh, treatment group, they had 50% cassava root chips in the food and 5% of the Moringa leaf meal in the food. So I was reading a little bit about why they chose these two particular foods. Now, cassava is a a woody tuber. It is used in different parts of the world as a a source of, um, it's a woody herb, actually, as a source of food. And then to help human diets um, and combat nutritional deficiencies, uh, that are in with the cassava, some people are, are, are suggesting that the moringa leaf be used. Um, so we looked at, uh, they looked at um, different uh, different pens. So they had replications, at least three pens for each of the treatments. They looked at the number of eggs per hen every day. Uh, they looked at uh, body weights of the hens uh, at the beginning of the trial and at the end of the trial because you don't want the hens to lose weight over the course of this this trial. Um, they also, on a daily basis, looked at how much the chickens were eating of this diet, that they were the different formulations of the diet they were trying. They looked at egg weights. Uh, they looked at uh, egg mass on a per hen basis the grams of egg per grams of feed eaten, and mortality rates. 
they they looked at an impressive number of parameters for the eggs. So for the eggs, they looked at haul unit, uh, yolk height, albumin height, um, shell weight, shell thickness. Uh, they looked at um, the percentage of the eggs that were devoted to shell versus albumin versus yolk versus the whole egg weight. Um, and so they actually ca calculated some indexes. They had an egg shape index and a yolk index. They also looked at yolk color uh, by using a Roche color fan. <clears throat> For the fertility, they um, they incubated some of the eggs and found out how many you know how many hatched out versus how many were actually fertile and didn't hatch out. Um, they actually did take a look at the the chicks themselves and investigated or, or analyzed the chicks um, to see what their chick quality was because sometimes chicks hatch out and they're just not good quality. Yes, they hatched out of the shell, but they're probably going to pass away or they're, they might have um, other issues. Um, sometimes they're very small and they're just not going to be a good growers, so that contributes to poor chick quality. Um, and they, when they looked at the chicks, they were looking at um, chick length um, and chick weight. And they also took those from each hen, well, from certain hens in each pen. Um, so they looked at the blood serum. They looked at the cholesterol levels of the bird because you are giving them a, a different diet. <clears throat> and what they found as part of this particular study, which I found very interesting. Um, uh, they found that in the group that had the 50% cassava root chips and 5% moringa leaf meal, um, they had high the highest uh, egg weight, so that's the whole egg. Um, they had longer eggs, not necessarily wider, but they were longer. Um, those eggs were had a little bit more shell, but that wasn't significantly different from one of the other treatment groups. Same with the albumin height. Um, but they did have actually more albumin inside them than the other eggs. Uh, they had uh, They had more yolk than the other eggs. So you, you did get a slightly bigger egg out of these birds, which was interesting. Um, they didn't have higher fertility or higher... Um, I'm sorry, I was getting a little feedback there, Andy. I'm sorry. <clears throat> really? Okay, cool. Um, they, got, they had a little lower embryo mortality. They also had a little bit higher chick weight in grams than the other treatment groups. So it seemed like there might be something to this Moringa leaf meal combined with cassava root chips. Um, I'm not saying everybody should suddenly run out there and, and stop feeding your chickens a balanced diet and start putting cassava root out there. Um, but uh, when they started to take a look at the, the serum total cholesterol and, and the serum total protein in the hens, and the reason why you're looking at that is, you know, if, if the diet changes, you can affect the cholesterol in the eggs. 
So they looked at this the cholesterol in the hens and they looked at the cholesterol in the eggs and they found that they, they actually had a significantly higher serum cholesterol in the hens with the cassava root chip and the um the moringa oleifera leaf meal and same with the yolk cholesterol. So that's kinda interesting. And I hope that these these folks do go further with this research. Um, one of the things that they did concede, and I did not know this until I read this article, was that um, although they were really pleased that the combination of the 50% cassava root chip and 5% moringa oleofera leaf meal um, can be used to replace corn, grain, and soybean meal, Moringa oleifera leaf meal is being promoted more widely for human consumption because it it has value to ad- address health issues as a nutritional supplement. So if people are out there making a choice as to what they need to plant um, moringa oleifera leaf meal, they would hope that people would plant more of that so that there'll be not only enough for humans, but you might be able to include extra in the chicken's diet. So that gives a little bit of information to farmers as to the marketability of that product and the potential of that product for use in chicken diets as well as human diets. Cool beans. Yeah, very interesting. Everybody loves a healthier egg, and I know a lot of people that eat backyard poultry, you know, they refer to that long time, those kind of study that's been out there for a long time, and say, oh, look, vacuum's really pastured eggs, was the study that I think Mother Earth News did uh, many, many moons ago that showed, you know, this this much better and it has this much more of that and this much more of this and less cholesterol, things like that. And it was really birds, I think, raised on pasture, but they think, mm-hmm. oh, my backyard, but uh, that's from my backyard. No, not, not necessarily, but it's, you know, it's, uh, people do believe that they have the, the better uh, the better eggs coming from their backyard. They have a lot of commercial uh, producers. Hey, Doc, we got to take a little break here. We're talking with um, poultry scientist and professor, Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D., and we're talking about uh, poultry research translated. Always a really interesting show. Uh, we can all learn a lot from some of the recent science and studies that have been going on. So uh, uh, there'll be more to come right after this short break. So stay with us. When you need an incubator, think Brency, the incubation specialist. Brency has been a world-leading manufacturer of incubators for over 30 years. Incubators from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity control and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Visit them online at Brency.com. Brency spelled B-R-I-N-S-E-A. That's Brency.com or call 1-888-667-7009. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and save 10% on their incubators, brooders, egg candlers, and other incubation accessories. When you need an incubator, think Brency. Technology you can trust. You've just entered a dimension of dirty water, a dimension of poop-filled water, a dimension of stagnant water. You've crossed into the dirty waterer zone. But up ahead is your signpost to cleaner water. 
Bright Tap Chicken Waterer. The Bright Tap Waterer is fully covered. Chickens drink from special valves, so dirt and droppings can't get into the water. Chickens get sparkling clean water. You get less work. No poop-filled water pans for you to touch or wash out. Bright Tap, clean water made simple. Visit chickenwaterer.com to learn more. That's chickenwaterer.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Are you in the market for a new chicken coop? Want one that will outlast all the others? Then check out Urban Coop Company. All of their coops are made from 100% appearance-grade western red cedar with galvanized hardware and advanced all-weather joinery right here in the USA. Compared to other coops, Urban Coop Company coops will last longer and look better doing it. They're designed to be both beautiful and functional. In fact, they have earned the Chicken Whisperer seal of approval and are Chicken Whisperer approved. I invite you to browse their website to learn more about the many features of their coops and check out their integrated coop accessories that will make your life easier. Urban Coop Company is a family-owned business located in Dripping Springs, Texas, USA. They are passionate about building great coops because they know you're passionate about your backyard chickens. Visit them online at urbancoopcompany.com. That's urbancoopcompany.com. Give the chicken fountain a try. It's clean water by design. It's a new way to water your flock. Chickens to turkeys to ducks to peacocks. Nothing to lose, so start today. Not a major water, the easy way. It's the Chicken Whisperer, here to tell you that if you have backyard poultry, nothing is more important than making sure your feathered friends are safe from infectious poultry diseases. Learn the simple steps to keep your birds healthy by visiting this website, healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. That's healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. A message from the USDA. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. How would you like a punch in the beak? Actually, in reality, I am Super Chicken. All right, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Our guest, of course, is poultry scientist and professor, Dr. Bridget McCray, Ph.D., and we're talking about poultry research translated today. We've covered a couple of three so far, and 
Maybe have a couple of more before we call it a day. Uh, so back over to you, Doc. Thanks, Andy. Well, I'm going to switch things up. I do like to talk about some rare and unusual forms of poultry from time to time. So let's talk about emus. Ready, Andy? Where do yeah. emus come from? Oh, jeez. Um, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> oh, I'm just let me just take a just a wild and crazy guess. Emus come from. Do you want to save that for maybe a, a question worth a prize at the end? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. We may have to do that sometime. So, but no, tell okay. us where they're from. That's actually one of the test questions for my introduction to poultry science students. They have to know where emus and ostriches come from. Okay. So there was a study that looked at the length of storage on emu eggs and how it affects the hatchability. So the longer that you store eggs, the less hatchable they become. There's a difference between percent fertility and percent hatchability. Percent hatchability is the number of eggs you get that hatch out of fertile eggs. Because, of course, you're not going to get any hatch potential from an infertile egg, right? Yep. So hatchability is the percent of eggs that hatched out of fertile eggs. And fertility is how many fertile eggs you hatched. So uh, that means the number of eggs that hatched plus the fertile ones that didn't hatch, which means you have to open up eggs and find out, you know, was it fertile? Did it start and then die? Was it fertile and it just never developed? And that's something that even your listeners can do if they've got a rooster in with their hens and they're trying to hatch out eggs. i got a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, (coughs) excuse me, I had a whole bunch of infertiles. And I'm like, so you opened them up? And they're like, uh, no. And I'm like, so how do you know if they were infertile? Could have grown for one day and then died. But it was still fertile. Maybe you didn't see um, development uh, because you can't see that kind of development just by candling the eggs. Okay, so storage, the way you store eggs is important. Um, This particular study, what they did is um, they looked at eggs that were held over short amounts of time and long amounts of time and saw what their moisture loss was and their hatchability. As your listeners know, eggshells have pores in them, and so... There's oxygen and carbon dioxide exchange, but there's also moisture loss. That's why when you have um, chicken eggs and you take a look at the large end of the chicken egg, which has more pores, um, you'll have an air cell that gets larger over time because it's losing water, it's losing moisture. They found in this particular study that if you store eggs longer than 21 days, you're going to have a decrease in in hatchability, a significant decrease in hatchability if you store eggs longer than three weeks. So for eggs that were stored um, zero days to six days, they had 90.8% hatchability. Eggs that were stored for seven to 13 days had 85% hatchability, and then 14 to 20 days, (coughs) 
they were uh, 69.5% hatchability. After that, the hatchability dropped so much. Um, you had some that were like 50%, 41%, 9%. And they took this all the way out to 63 days of storage. So over time, of course, hatchability changed. Um, Now, emus are not single-comb white leghorns, okay? They do not lay an egg a day. They're not the most efficient egg layers out there on on planet Earth. I I think our single-comb white leghorns do a nice job of that. And so the number of eggs in each replication for each of these one-week periods varied depending upon the production of the birds. Um, They also looked at moisture loss. Of course, if you store your eggs for zero to six days, you only get 2.7% moisture loss. And the longer you store them, the more moisture loss there is. Okay? So that's the moral of that story. And this, this is consistent with information that we already know about chicken eggs. So it's a nice little study. It's something that even um, some of your young listeners could do as we move into science fair season. If they have chickens that have um, roosters in with them, uh, they could look at the hatchability and the percent fertility of their own eggs. So you could put 60 eggs in an incubator, and then you count the number that hatched out. And then any that didn't hatch out, you've got to open them up and record how many were never fertile to begin with and how many were fertile but perhaps did not develop all the way. So there you go. There's another study under your belt, listeners. And I don't know if if, if it's your thing. You can share that information with others at um, cocktail parties over the holidays. There you go. There's a little tasty tidbit of information. That you can yeah, share cocktail, with other folks. Cocktail parties, no pun intended. And um, <laughs> the, <laughs> Peter Brown did a uh, article. I'm pretty sure it was in the spring issue of uh, Chicken Whisperer magazine in 2014. The spring issue, uh, a little bit of uh, about advanced incubation and um, how if you had a bad hatch, investigating and cracking the eggs open, seeing the level of development, see may where they stopped growing, where, where they died, and what day they died, and why. Maybe some uh, more common reasons why they died, when they died. So uh, people can refer to that at chickenwhisperermagazine.com. So, um, now, is yeah, the, the new issue out, Andy? Um, it is. The the Christmas, uh, the winter issue um, has been out. The digital, um, I think it was last Saturday, the digital um, magazine went out to everybody that subscribes, I think, digitally. And then the print should be starting to hit the mailboxes this week. I think that was the second or the third that they were actually going to be uh, labeled and and mailed out. So uh, if you subscribe to the digital edition, you should have already gotten it. Um, And if you subscribe to the print edition, you should start getting that this week. Very good. Very good. (laughs) Yep, very, very cool. Go ahead. We're both got coughing today, don't we? All right. So I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit and talk about one of my favorite bacteria, salmonella. Yay. Um, <laughs> that's usually not the response that people give when they say salmonella. But okay, Andy, I can I can get on board with that. I'm a microbiologist. 
so this little study came out of the University of Georgia, and they worked with North Carolina State University. Um, those are two universities that work really well together and have worked with each other for many years. What they did is they looked at two types of caging systems. Um, they looked at, um, because that's one of the, the reasons that a lot of people have their own flocks, Andy, is they don't like how chickens are being raised in commercial conditions. So what they did is they looked at um, conventional cages, what are called battery cages, and then they also looked at colony-style cages. And these were enriched colony-style cages. So these, the enrichments were a nesting area and purchase. And colony cages let the birds, um, they're in a group. They're in a much larger group, a larger space. Um, so what they did is they experimentally infected um, a certain number of birds in each cage with salmonella. And that was a particular type of salmonella. It was um, phage type 13A. <clears throat> and they wanted to see how quickly salmonella spread from bird to bird in cage to cage. Um, now, these two types of cages were in separate areas. So you had, you know, several colony cages together, and then another another place you had um, several conventional cages together. So what they found out was that um, basically... Three days after the birds were um, experimentally infected with salmonella, the birds that were able to move around more easily and in the colony cage system, um, the birds that were in the same cages with the birds that were experimentally infected, those were called contact-exposed birds. Those birds got infected a lot faster than the birds in conventional cages. So I'm sitting there going, whoa, okay. So the rest of the time, they um, they checked these birds. They, what they did is they, they did what's called a cloacal swab. So they, they took what looked like a Q-tip and, and swabbed their vent. Um, three days after they were the um, the sample of birds in each pen were infected, Six days, nine days, thirteen days, sixteen days, twenty and twenty-three days, and so they they were basically looking at these birds to see, you know, were they going to stay infected the whole time? Um, how many contact-exposed birds in the same cage were going to turn up as positive? So basically, the contact-exposed birds, the only way they're getting salmonella is through contact with birds that are carrying. Salmonella because they were experimentally infected. Am I making sense, Sandy? Are you following yep. me? Absolutely. Um, so if, I, if, I, if I'm sitting next to you while you had your cold, while you were sneezing and coughing, yeah. the chance I might get that cold. <laughs> yeah. So for the rest of the time, there was no significant difference between. Um, the enriched colony cages and the conventional cages in the number of infected birds and how fast it spread. Just in the first three days was there a real significant difference with um, 
more birds becoming infected, more contact exposed birds becoming infected in the colony cage system. So just thought you should know, it's another study taking a look at um, the way that salmonella moves through a flock or has the potential to move through a flock of chickens. And, you know, it means that since some places are changing what type of cages or housing conditions that are required to be used for housing chickens, you have to reassess the potential for salmonella to move efficiently or effectively through those systems. And what you need to do to change that or affect that. Now, of course, these are cages, so you are removing the birds from their feces. So, you know, the feces fall away from the chickens um, onto either a pit below or onto a manure belt. So, yes, you are trying to remove the birds from their feces, but, um, you know, contact exposure means that perhaps um, birds just peck at each other and they pick up salmonella, um, and that's how the the contact exposed birds are being affected. <clears throat> now, Andy, I'm not paying attention to the Blog Talk radio page. Are there any questions on there? There are not. Okay. Um, so, looking back to ratites again, I found one on ostriches. And I don't know if your listeners know this, but ostrich meat is getting a little bit more popular, and it is kind of classified as a red meat. <clears throat> so it's it's one of the most efficient industries um, as far as ratite production. Um, you're more likely to come across ostrich meat in the store than you are, say, rhea or emu meat. So Which they took a look to at... Be both from Australia, by the way. I'm sorry? Uh, from Australia, correct? Uh, yes, emus are from Australia. So where are ostriches from? Oh. Um, <laughs> I just I'm looked at question. Australia as well. No. Okay, emus from Australia and ostrich from hmm, Africa. There you go. <laughs> I, 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 could, I mean, I can guess with the best of them, can I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a lot of lot of companies out there that are marketing ostrich meat as a, a very healthy red meat because it has a lot of a high level of polyunsaturated fatty acids. Um, so this particular study looked at um, the production and quality parameters as well as a, a nutritional comparison of ostrich meat to other types of meats and. Um, what they did is they, they know that they have uh, a low saturated fatty acid content of ostrich meat, low cholesterol level in comparison to red meats like beef, um, but the taste is very similar to lean beef. Um, one thing that I thought some of your listeners might find interesting is that ostrich meat contains lower sodium, and higher iron iron content than other kinds of meat. So somebody who has hypertension, you might want to turn to ostrich meat, and it's red meat. 
um, somebody who has anemia, you might consider ostrich meat as part of your diet just to kind of shake things up. <clears throat> so if you're thinking about ostrich meat and where it can fit into your um, healthy living choices and meat selections when you go to the store, it really is a, a, a nice red meat with, for a healthier lifestyle. Um, so some of the things they looked at were tenderness, color, um, and so this particular study did a nice job. It has a nice fatty acid um, or, or a preferable fatty acid profile, low fat to protein ratio, low sodium, high iron, and um, and one of the things is you can think of it as a nice alternative to beef. So there you go. Ostrich, the other red meat. Yeah, ostrich burger. I'll have to uh, have to uh, order that. One <laughs> <laughs> one of the last studies I'm going to talk to you about. Get ready. It's along the same lines as that cassava root chip study, but it's okay. with seaweed. <clears throat> Seaweed. Yes, seaweed. Um, this particular study um, comes out of Canada. And uh, what they did is they wanted to take a look at including red seaweed supplements into a regular poultry diet and see how it affected uh, how the birds performed, uh, the quality of the eggs that the chickens laid. They also went so far as to look at the intestines themselves under the microscope what's called histology. So they were measuring the uh, villi length of uh, different parts of the intestines. They also looked at the fatty acid profiles. Um, the birds that they were using for this study was the Loman Brown. And I think you've you've worked with that strain of chickens before, right? Or, or was that the Issa Brown that you like? Yeah, the Issa Browns, ISA Browns, Issa Browns, yeah. Great birds. Okay. So what they did is they they gradually changed out different components of the diet and, and added um, um, different levels of the seaweed um, at a half a percent or one percent or two percent and um, they also were looking at another um, they were looking at two red seaweeds chondrus crispus and sarcodi chaudi I think I pulled that off pretty good. I could be totally making that up, though. <laughs> um, so they found that when they put in various levels of these two seaweeds um, into the diet, it really didn't affect the bird's feed intake. Um, it didn't really affect the bird's body weight or their egg production. And sometimes when you start playing with different ingredients, Andy, with the bird's diet, one of the things that you have to take a look at carefully is the fecal moisture content because if you start to feed your birds new and different items, sometimes you can cause diarrhea. And so that's one of the parameters they took a look at is the um, fecal moisture content. And that's a really simple test. Um, what they do is they take a, a series of fresh fecal samples from the birds, weigh them wet, they put them in a oven dryer for 24 hours and then weigh them dry and no 
you do not do this for HRs and 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 um, school project kids. You do not put chicken feces in your mother's oven, please. This is a special scientific kind of oven. <laughs> I don't want to encourage any of this um, activity. Do not put chicken poop in your mother's oven. All right, that said, um, uh, they also did uh, blood serum. They took blood serum samples from these birds to see what um, contributions the red seaweeds had to the birds' um, uh, serum levels and serum profiles. They did take a look at feed conversion ratio because whenever you start play with a diet, you want to take a look at feed conversion ratio and how effective it is. Um, they looked at it on a per gram of egg and found it was significantly more efficient for a couple of the treatments, which was um, the higher level of red seaweed treatments of 2%. Um, they also found that there were some increased yolk weights um, with one of the supplementation levels, that was the um, Chondrus crispus 1% level. Um, when you look at the gut villi length and villus surface area, they found it was um, higher and higher villus and more surface area with the 2% levels of the two red seaweeds compared to birds that had regular control diets. Um, they did actually take a look at some of the bacteria that was growing in the, in the bird's guts. Um, when you put seaweed supplements in the feed, they found that there was um, an increased number of beneficial bacteria. They were looking at bifidobacterium and streptococcus, um, and they also reduced the prevalence of clostridium perfringens, and that's an organism that likes to grow in non-air environments and can sometimes be found in chicken guts and sometimes in certain chicken diseases like um, gangrenous dermatitis. Um, they also found that the concentration of short-chain fatty acids like acetic acid, propionic acid, butyric acid um, were higher when you put in the, the two red seaweed um, supplements over the control. So if you're looking at potentially using red seaweed in these low, low levels, um, it could be a potential prebiotic if you want to improve the performance of your birds. Um, and then they say potential because if you recall, um, it didn't really affect body weight or um, or egg production, but it did change the egg quality um, and it did improve the overall gut health in the in the laying hen. So something for you to consider. Um, these two particular types of seaweeds, really cool study. Uh, but there you go. I have shared several of these interesting studies with your listeners today, and there's there's lots more out there. But these are the ones, the the cream that kind of rose to the top that I thought your listeners might find interesting, since. Some of your listeners like to play with the feed a little bit, <clears throat> and it might help them design experiments of their own if they're if they're with it, wishing to change things up a little bit. Absolutely, and a reminder to all the kids out there listening that uh, you know the shows listened to by a lot of homeschoolers, like Dr. McRae said, no chicken poop in mom's oven. <laughs> yeah, this is a scientific oven. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I had <laughs> to clarify. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Well, yeah, it's always really, really neat information, and it's good to have someone tell us about it and kind of what it means and how it may, can relate to our uh, our flocks uh, in our backyard and what people are actually out there spending money to study on. <laughs> Sometimes we'll do studies and be like, really? How much of our tax dollars are spent on that? You know, when you see government study this, that, and the other, and and um, and then normally the outcomes like, well, hell, I could have told you that and pocketed the four million dollars for that study, but but no, I mean everything we do, the, the bird, like you said, over the last fifty, sixty years, the broiler chicken. I posted something really neat about that last month, and then the development of that, and and um, uh, using genetics, very very fascinating stuff. Um, so folks can have that right or wrong. 99-cent chicken sandwich at the fast food restaurant. So um, very cool information. Thank you very and much I, for joining us. It's I remember a, a long time ago, Andy, you were asking me, gosh, it must have been just after we met. You're like, does anybody do research on on the weird things we give chickens? And I'm like, sometimes. So I thought <laughs> I'd bring some of that to your listeners so that they could know there are potential prebiotics and alternative protein and energy sources out there for your chickens. And people are looking at it so that corn and soy, it's not available in all places in our planet. So Mm -hmm. you might look at alternatives. I I would still love for somebody, we had talked about doing this, it's just our schedules are so so wicked crazy, um, about somebody doing a study to find out, you know, Everything the same, same chicks from the same place, and there are pins next to each other, same, everything the same, like like we know about studies have to be, and then one are organic feed, one are the feed from the feed you know feed store, just regular non-organic feed, and uh, and then once they start laying, test those eggs. Let me, let me see the difference. Let me see what I'm paying for or not paying for with a forty dollar bag of organic feed or a. $14 bag of regular feed from the store. I'd, I'd still love to see that study done. Um, so people, I mean, probably won't change many minds, but at least people will know kind of what, what they're paying for and if it's worth it to them, even though I know it's a lifestyle decision um, regardless of whether it be as the GMO folks, the anti-GMO folks, or that type of thing. So it may not change many people. Yeah, I went process. to the store the other day and I saw, I, you know, I can't resist going into a feed store and taking a look around. Um, they had non-GMO chicken feed locally mm-hmm. here. And I'm sitting there going, and so I asked the guy, I said, how much of this do you sell? And he says, I can't keep it in stock. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. Yeah. Although I did see two bags of it there. Although I don't know <laughs> how many bags he started with. <laughs> Might have been just the time of day that I went in. Um but uh, I, I said, but it's not pelleted feed. And he says, I can't get it pelleted because then I'm in direct competition with somebody else who pellets the feed. And I'm like, but there's so much more feed wastage, significantly more feed wastage with mash feed. And he uh-huh. says, yeah, I know, but people keep buying it. And I'm like, well, I guess if they're buying more feed, why why should you complain? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> You're selling it. <clears throat> and I said, but what do you do about salmonella control? And he looked at me blankly. So obviously I don't think he knew that salmonella can come in with the ingredients. And if you don't heat treat the feed ingredients, Mm -hmm. like when you pelletize feed, it goes through a large amount of heat treatment, and that usually kills bacteria, including salmonella. And so pellets and crumbles, crumbles are just broken up pellets. 
have been heat treated, yep. but mashes aren't. And I, I said, so how how do people feel about, you know, the potential for salmonella? And he says, I don't think the ingredients are infected. And I know that any batch of feed can come in. Um, any ingredient right. could come in infected. Nobody intends for it to be infected, but, yeah. you know, hopefully yeah. they test for that sort of thing. <clears throat> of course, that was the whole reason why that that outbreak occurred in Iowa so many umpty bajillion years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that big outbreak, it was the feed mill. Um, one of the process controls failed, and so they, they ended up, you know, the feed, leaving the feed mill was not as heat treated as they wanted, and they had a, <laughs> ingredients coming in that were positive. So, oh, well. Pretty good. Hey, thank you very much for joining us. The first and the third Thursday of every single month, and I will get with you uh um, uh, off the air, and we'll talk about uh, some topics for next year. We'll talk about next yeah. year's schedule, and we'll uh, uh, talk about, I don't think there'll be much to talk about, Grooptastic. And then um, if you want to get that book down here for me to autograph, so you can get that to your mama. <laughs> Thanks for the <laughs> reminder. <laughs> I'll talk to you later, Bridget. Thanks for coming on today. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, yes, her mom apparently has been asking for one of her autographed books with, with me and her uh, autographed it. And uh, since it's come out, I think it's been out about three years. And so uh, one of the things she, I think, uh, off the air told me that she's got to get this book to her mom. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, I'll give her the address where we're at here in Florida. We can get that done. And uh, yeah, they're great stocking stuffers. So, speaking of stocking stuffers, folks. ChickenWhisperermagazine.com. ChickenWhisperermagazine.com. You can subscribe to the digital edition, print edition. What a great gift that keeps on giving all year long. $9.95. I'm sure you have a chicken lover in your life uh, that you can spend $9.95 on and uh, get them more educated on keeping the backyard poultry in the backyard healthy and happy. Uh, there's also a Chicken Whisperer calendar that was done again this year. Uh, by my publisher, it's a uh, smaller one. I think it's like seven by seven, seven inches by seven inches. So it's a uh, smaller edition than the one they did, I think, last year. You can find that on Amazon. And, of course, there's the book, which you can find at Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble and Tractor Supply and Lowe's and Home Depot and Books A Million and uh, retail booksellers everywhere. So uh, lots of great stocking stuff and stuff from the Chicken Whisperer. So, hey, follow us on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash The Chicken Whisperer, and of course at Twitter at Backyard Poultry. Thank you very much for tuning in today. No shows on Friday. We'll see you back here Monday with another great episode of Ask the Chicken Doctor with Peter Brown. Have a great weekend, everybody. God bless.